When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno from Real Vision, sending to you live September 1st of 2022. Today, we're going to ask the question whether the Federal Reserve will stay at higher interest rate levels for longer. And no one's better at answering that exact question than my guest of the uh, hour, namely Darius Dale, the founder of 42 Macro. It's very good to see you again, Darius. Andreas, that is a high bar you're putting me on, man. We're going to disappoint a lot of people today. <laughs> How <are> you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. I hope you're doing good as well. But um, before we we answer the question, Darius, we've uh, basically received a bunch of uh, of data prints from the U.S. today. Uh, first of all, the ISM manufacturing figure. Uh, what do you make of uh, of the headline number and the subcomponents? Yeah, so it's a, a very important report, very important week for macroeconomic updates. You know, like the 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 bottom up guys, the guys and gals, they get like four times a year where they get you know new information. We get new information all the time, particularly you know particularly the uh, first week of the month. So as you mentioned, uh, we got the ISM for the month of August. Um, good report. You know, obviously we uh, we were flat on a month over month basis from a headline perspective, but we did see both the new orders and and employment components tick up. Uh, to me, I think you put it, you tweeted out a chart of this. Um, the uh, the slowdown in prices paid uh, continues to point to a, a pretty material deceleration uh, of inflation in the coming months and quarters, and so that's something that I think uh, is worth uh, showing, highlighting. Brian, I think that chart of yours was uh, really uh, really important. So, Darius, do do you find it to be a valid signal when we see such a slowdown in prices paid in the ISM manufacturing index? Is it a valid signal for the inflation in in a couple of quarters from now? Yeah, great question. Phenomenal question. So when you regress it on a levels basis, you know, the level versus the level of inflation, um, you tend to get a valid signal. They're correlated, they're co-integrated. But when you regress it on a first difference basis, i.e. from a rate of change perspective, the signal breaks down more or less entirely. Um, you cannot use the ISM prices uh, subcomponents to anticipate either the momentum of inflation on a, a month over month or three month annualized basis, nor can you use it to predict with any specificity where inflation will be 
on a given particular date, you know, so you, you more or less, you you retain the co-integration of the time series, but you lose sort of the um, kind of tight correlation. And so one thing I did uh, notice uh, in the report, in the ISM manufacturing report today, that is very positive on the inflation that we can take to the bank from a signaling perspective uh, is the continued breakdown in the percentage of respondents reporting slower supplier delivery times. So in my opinion, uh, this indicator, both within the ISM manufacturing and the ISM services has been the key barometer alongside global shipping prices uh, throughout the pandemic of global supply chain disruptions. You know, we've seen this this percentage of respondents reporting slower supply delivery times has uh, ticked down to 19.6 percent. You know, this was trending at like 70, 80 percent um, throughout most of the pandemic. And so now, you know, this thing is basically crashed. It's cratered and it's suggesting that a lot of the sort of you know, transitory supply chain driven inflation that we've been accumulating uh, over the last kind of 18 to 24 months is really come out of the system. We're now back at more normalized levels of this particular indicator. So you should expect to see that in goods pricing in this inflation reports in the coming months. But it doesn't necessarily mean the Fed's job on inflation is done, because clearly there's a whole lot more inflation when you look at services and median inflation, et cetera. Yeah, makes a whole lot of sense, that point, Darius. If we look at the Federal Reserve, um, I've made a chart on the historical correlation between the PCE price index, so the target variable of the Federal Reserve, and the federal funds rate. Um, and basically, when you look three, four decades back, we've never had a pivot until the Fed funds rate actually printed above the PCE price index on a year-over-year -year basis. Mm -hmm. So with PCE prices running clearly above Fed funds rates still, should we expect the Fed to continue to hike? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's the, there's been some positive, and you and I have talked about this in recent uh, Real Vision Daily Briefings, uh, specifically about the breakdown in core inflation momentum, the aggressive and kind of historic breakdown outside of recession, uh, breakdown in core inflation momentum we observed in July. So that is very positive. But in terms of like, you know, taking that to the bank and straight lining that and saying, hey, this is going to continue to happen at this pace magnitude, and therefore the Fed's going to kind of pivot anytime soon. I don't think we have enough, nearly enough information on that as investors. In fact, when you do the statistics on it, it's suggestive that, hey, the bare, the base case scenario should be this won't continue to happen. Um, and we should expect the Fed to be tightening policy uh, for at least another quarter, perhaps a couple of quarters um, in terms of that regard. But the one thing I do think is positive from a medium term perspective, because right now, I think one thing you and I can talk about this in a second in terms of the three phases of monetary policy. As a matter of fact, I might as well just talk about them now because I introduced them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, you know, let's take a step back. You know, the, if you kind of think about the world through the lens of my U.S. monetary policy, you know, we've kind of been in three phases. The first phase was from like November to March, if you will, with the Fed sort of having to acknowledge that transitory, their transitory forecasts and views were wrong, catching up to the market implied uh, pricing for Fed funds, et cetera, with persistent and in terms of their policy guidance. Phase two, or, or and, and, no, sorry, phase one was November through, let's call it June. Phase two was June through mid-August where, you know, investors and markets were saying, hey, look, all this accelerated tightening you're doing in phase one is going to cause the economy to crash. And eventually you're going to be forced to pivot. We know you, Jay Powell, you'd like to pivot. We're going to go ahead and price that in already. Phase three is, oh, hold your horses. This economy is very clearly still growing robustly from a labor market perspective. It may be contributing to further upside inflation pressure in the system. And this is where you're getting Federal Reserve officials culminating, obviously, with Powell's speech and Jackson Hole coming out and effectively saying, no way, Jose, we're going to be tighter, 
for longer. That is the key kind of a phrase to take away from phase three. So to answer your question, tighter for longer has obviously created a lot more um, volatility in asset markets over the near term as markets have the price out phase two and price in phase three. But from my perspective, from a medium to longer term risk management perspective, let's call it six to 12 months from now, I do believe that phase three tighter for longer is actually positive at the margins relative to you know the prior phase one tightening. Because if you don't go as high and you just stay uh, tight for longer, you don't necessarily need to kind of crash the economy. They could just take rates to, let's call it 4% and sit there for a year or two, as opposed to going to 5%, crashing the economy and then having to turn around and doing about face. So I think that's kind of you know implicitly what they're targeting, which is a policy where they get restrictive, but not too restrictive, which will allow them to remain tighter for longer. If we take a step back and um, debate the speech given by uh, Jay Powell at Jackson Hole last week, it seemed as if he basically wanted real rates, so inflation-adjusted interest rates, to move into positive territory, also in the very front of the yield curve. Right now, it seems as if that is a mission accomplished by the Fed. So can they get any more hawkish now? Uh, they can. I mean, look, if inflation data misbehaves, we're going to get the CPI report for August on the 13th. If that data point misbehaves, it's unlikely to misbehave in a material fashion, just given the leading indicators we're seeing in, in commodity markets, et cetera. But if it misbehaves, because, again, we still have this whole thing called services in, in the labor market, then we're going to get an incremental step function higher in terms of policy rate expectations. Because, again, I don't know that the Fed has put a lid on that. It's just saying we're not going to just blow through it and take you way past neutral um, and, you know, in terms of, um, you know, kind of their policy setting. So uh, I think the jury is still out. I think we need to analyze the data in terms of what it means for, you know, I think the, you know, I think we all know inflation is coming down, going down over the next 12 months. Right. Like that's I think we can all agree on that as investors. But what we're trying to ascertain is, is that going to be a linear process where we get to comfortable levels of inflation that will allow the Fed to say mission accomplished? You know, what time horizon will that occur? And is that going to occur three months from now, six months from now, 12 months from now? Is that process going to be smooth and linear or is the process going to be very stochastic with fits and starts? If it's the latter, then we're talking about, you know, incremental tightening relative to what's currently priced in markets. If it's the former, then we're probably fairly priced in terms of expectations for monetary policy. If we look at the labor market, we've actually had a bunch of data prints out this week um, already, and um, they seem pretty decent, uh, at least on the surface. Uh, so when you make your assessment of the labor market in relation to the Fed reaction function, what's your live assessment right now? Hangbusters booming, <laughs> booming. <laughs> I've said I've been saying this for months now. The labor market is booming. Um, you can read as many zero hedge articles as you want, but you can look at just look at the data. I mean, we got a couple of charts here on um, uh, side seventy five and seventy six from our, our macro scouting report. Uh, so the side seventy five just kind of highlights the labor market from a levels perspective. The upper panel in that chart shows the jobs relative to total unemployed. We got that data this week. Hit basically back at the all-time high of 2.0 um, in terms of the ratio. Um, private sector quicks weight, we got that in that report, um, flat at 3.1%, which is, you know, basically in the 90 plus percentile of that time series going all the way back to, you know, I think I want to say 2000 or something. So very, very tight labor market. The bottom panel in that chart shows a uh, private sector employment cost index. That's the broadest measure of, of compensation uh, in the economy. And at 5.5% year over year through the second quarter, that's the fastest rate we've ever seen. Um, the second chart shows the labor market on a growth weight on a momentum basis. 
And what we're showing in this chart, um, you know, there's four different indicators. There's private payrolls growth, there's average hourly earnings, average weekly hours, and then aggregate labor income, which is the product of those variables. Um, as you can see, relative to the light blue line, light blue bar in this chart, relative to the dark blue bar, you can just see that the growth weight that we're currently observing in the labor market, and this again, this is data through July, uh, on a three-month annualized basis, is double across all the measures that really matter from the Fed's perspective in terms of you know growth rate of jobs, earnings, and uh, aggregate income. It's basically double the level we trended at relative, uh, in the pre-COVID period, in the five years through uh, COVID, uh, five years prior to COVID, um, which is the light blue bar. So um, this is a labor market that is both tight and growing. Uh, at a very extremely robust level. And so that's clearly contributing to kind of core inflation pressure building in the in the system. We obviously have the big report upcoming tomorrow, uh, the monthly job report. Do you have any firm views on on that report, Darius? Uh, I've tried this so many times in my career. <laughs> it's varying degrees of success. I'm sure we've all have built models <laughs> using the ADP report and trying to forecast NFP. Don't waste your time. If you're a young economist or young investor, take take Andreas and I's word for it. Don't waste your time. You'd be better off just leaving leaving work early. Um, um, so yeah, like look, we got the ADP report. Um, they revised their methodology. Um, it, it was a pretty significant slowdown from like 270,000 to 138 or something like that. Um, you know, that's still, by the way, that's basically the trend level we <laughs> grew private payrolls at in the pre-COVID period. So at best, you know, we're still, you know, kind of comfortably at trend from a from a um, you know structural perspective. Uh, but again, I'm not going to anchor on that in terms of our expectations for payrolls. Uh, the one thing I will say is we have not seen enough degradation in things like jobless claims. And certainly, if you look at the PMI reports in the most recent months, employment PMIs ticking up, consumer confidence ticking up, those kinds of things, you know, they're telling you that we should not be expecting a significant deceleration in, in, in the labor market outlook, or sorry, the labor market data over the very near term. Now, clearly these things take time to play out. Labor is a lagging indicator relative to the broader business cycle. Um, but, you know, just in terms of the near term data we're going to see maybe in July, or sorry, not July, in August, September, maybe even into October, you should not be expecting Armageddon from that perspective. I think that's the that's a very low probability event based on the current leading indicators. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Given this very solid labor market, the um, the financial market is basically rightfully chasing this tighter for longer narrative right now for the Federal Reserve. Uh, and one sort of side effect of that is that we see new highs in the mortgage rate sector, right? Uh, so again, we see this upwards pressure uh, on financing for housing. What do you make of the housing market in relation to this debate on interest rates? Yeah, no, the housing market is getting <laughs> getting destroyed. <laughs> Uh, this is what we got. Housing starts are contracting at an eighty percent annualized pace on a three month annualized basis. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna have no housing starts if we annualize that. You know, obviously, it's, you know, and so no, clearly the housing market is falling apart, right? Um, and and again, we're 
I mean, we're look, analyzing data on a, on a percentage change basis. We've got to consider the context. What's the base base level? You know, we're coming off bubbly conditions in the housing market, not necessarily bubbly from a credit creation standpoint in terms of, you know, the credit supply and credit quality, but certainly bubbly conditions from an activity standpoint and a demand standpoint. You know, you, you couldn't buy a house. You put a bid in, there'd be 30 other people offering cash to buy a house for the last 18 months. That's not normal. You know, so to see housing me- measures of housing at market activity contract significantly from that kind of level of activity is, is, is it, we should be expecting that given the move we've seen in mortgage rates. And also it's welcome. You know, it's welcome. It's adding a considerable amount of pressure on both the labor market and inflation. And so, you know, in order for us to get out of this tighter net liquidity environment, we have to see things like housing collapse. We have to see some uh, pressure uh, come out of the labor market, ultimately out of consumer spending, et cetera. One of the sort of stickier components of the consumer basket is the shelter cost. Um, yeah. And we know that the shelter cost tends tends to lag the economic cycle by maybe 12 months or thereabout. So yeah. given the signals that you see in, in the housing market, what's your assessment of this very sticky component of the consumer basket, the shelter cost? Yeah, our model suggests shelter inflation on a year-over-year rate of change basis should peak sometime in uh, in in the first quarter of, the, of next year. Uh, we've already more than likely peaked from a from a sequential uh, perspective in terms of the annualized rates of change. There, uh, you know, we all know the whole. I, I probably you and I have talked about this on the program. The kind of lag with which owners' equivalent rent gets priced through to CPI is partially fundamental, partially um, technical. Uh, so we need to unpack that. But the, the the key takeaway is that, yes, we will continue to see upper pressure on core inflation based on this kind of dynamic. Um, and so, you know, there's a there's a real, you know, going back to this discussion on the supply chain disruptions, you know, there's a there's a real kind of improvement, organic improvement in inflation that's happening under, you know, I think I don't know if enough investors are paying attention to this kind of stuff. Yeah, this is what I spent all my day doing. But there's some real positive developments happening in inflation. The question is, is after we get those positive elements that are associated with supply chain disruptions coming coming unglued, then what happens to inflation? Now we're left with an economy that has a labor market that's growing robustly at basically double the pre-COVID trend and is as tight as it's ever been through a variety of metrics. And so what kind of inflation, this core inflation, is that economy generating on a, on a sequential and year-over-year rate of change basis? That, to me, is something we don't know yet. And I think we're going to find that out this, this, this throughout the fourth quarter of this year. And if the the answer at the end, going back to the question I posed earlier, if the answer is we're going to trend lower, but it's going to be a stochastic process and we're not going to get to a comfortable level of inflation anytime soon, then we should expect much tighter liquidity conditions for asset markets for, you know, for an extended period of time. I'm talking multiple quarters, several quarters. If, however, that process is fairly linear, because the Fed is, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, the Fed has gotten policy into a restrictive setting, which I don't believe it has, then I think the liquidity conditions will start to brighten up by the end of the year. One of the reasons why central banks currently forcefully fight inflation is obviously to regain trust and credibility. And in relation to that debate uh, on trust and credibility, uh, I want to play a soundbite for you um, from an interview with Bank uh, Saint-Éloire uh, on Real Vision uh, in relation to how inflation can actually spiral out of control if the population loses trust in the authorities. So let's listen to the soundbite and get back to that debate. Yeah, sounds good. The biggest driver of inflation is, is I would think, trust. Uh, and, and you can see that in, uh, you know, high trust economies can do anything that you know would be very inflationary in any other place and have no inflation 
like you know like japan for example you know japan has been you know running huge deficits and doing you know building bridges to nowhere monetizing its debt uh doing qe negative rates or all that the, you know and yet there is no inflation in japan and i think part of the reason is because it's a high trust society um things work the way they're supposed to work uh so people don't question um the their institution the value of their currency um when they enter transactional contract with someone things happen the way they're supposed to happen now compare that to uh places with structurally low trust like uh brazil like argentina or southern italy um inflation there is is ingrained uh because people don't trust each other they don't trust the government they don't trust the court system and and that is that is why you see you know if if you owe money you want to get your money back as fast as possible uh if uh if you um uh if you have money you want to spend it as fast as possible because you don't know if the government is going to take it from you or inflation is going to come so inflation is structurally a lot more resilient in these economies i mean that's the uh um in brazil is brazil tax everything costs more in brazil no one really knows why but <laughs> I think the reason everything costs more in Brazil is because Brazilians don't trust one another and they don't trust the government. Uh, and that acts like a, a seat in the night that takes a cut of, of every human interaction. The entire interview on inflation and trust um, with Vincent Delois is already available at the Real Vision platform for subscribers. Back to you, Darius. Um, I mean, credibility and trust tend to matter for inflation we obviously have these very bad examples from brazil argentina etc so what do you make of the current debate around the credibility of the federal reserve in the context of inflation yeah i think it's just more i, I happen to so one i completely agree with them that like it, high inflation is a, clearly a lack of trust in in the money in the unit of transfer in the store of value in the you know i, I tend to look at money as as in interest rates really as a unit of of, of human beings time Right. And if you lose that trust and that faith, then, you you know, to his point, to the to, to Vince's point, you know, kind of breaks down the whole society and keeps inflation very sticky. And the opposite is true if you have a tournament trust. Going back to the Fed and their credibility, one thing I think has been very positive for asset markets, ironically, throughout this year is the Fed actually has credibility. You know, if you look at term premium, for instance, and the bond market, which is the kind of excess return you get um, for, you know, taking, you know, uh, you know, going out on the curve relative to rolling over um, um, your shorter term debt, you know, the term premium continue to be very, very negative. Um, I want to say on the 10-year, it's somewhere around like minus 50 basis points. You know, when we when the Federal Reserve lost credibility in the 70s, that term premium backed up to something like 400 basis points wide. So imagine a 10-year treasury yield at, you know, let's call it three and a quarter. Instead of three and a quarter, it's seven and a quarter because we lose trust in the in the Fed, right? That's a big deal. Um, so that that to me is something that that has been positive at the margins and, and actually, oh, by the way, could get worse, by the way. If you know the Fed pivots too soon and inflation rate is out of control, we go from eight and a half to twelve and a half. You could see something like that, but obviously, I don't think that's a the high prob highest probability outcome. Otherwise, you know, we'd be telling telling investors to position for that. But one thing I want to say on trust. Because it's not just the Fed. And I think one thing we all need to do as investors is have a little bit more humility and less trust in ourselves in an environment like this. In fact, I have a, a few charts that I like to kind of present. Uh, slide 86, Brian, uh, where we show um, these are all from our, 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 our macro scouting report and 42 macro. You know, this slide shows headline CPI 
going back on a year over year rate of change basis, going all the way back to 1881. Um, the red, the blue line, the red line shows the trailing five year volatility, annualized volatility of that time series. And what you can see is historically, when you're in high inflation episodes, you tend to have higher volatility on inflation. Now, that's obviously, you know, it makes a lot of mathematical sense, right? It, 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 but I think the, the, the key take there, sorry, the key takeaway is actually on the next slide is on slide 87. Uh, slide 87, where we show um, S&P 500 nominal real earnings divided by quartiles of inflation volatility. Uh, the nominals on the left, the reals on the right. And, and what we show is that, hey, look, based on data going all the way back, monthly data going all the way back to 1881, 1881, we can see that when you have higher inflation vol or higher inflation volatility, it begets higher nominal volatility from a growth perspective and higher real growth volatility. It becomes much harder to forecast what we're doing economically. And as a function of that, slide 88, which would be the next slide, you tend to have lower multiples for things like the stock market. On the left, we show uh, the S&P 500 price to earnings ratio. On the right, we show the, the, the Schiller CAPE ratio. And so kind of the key takeaway in summary, we're in a higher inflation regime. And a higher inflation regime means higher economic volatility, higher economic volatility, lower multiples for everything as a function of that. And just as a function of all of that, as investors, we need to recognize that it, this is going to be a much more difficult environment to forecast in and position for. You know, I hear a lot. I see a lot of conviction on Twitter at a time where I don't think investors should be having a tremendous amount of conviction because the data are suggesting you should not have a tremendous amount of conviction. So what I when I see that conviction, what it tells me is that people aren't doing their work. They're just married to their narratives. My main thesis right now, Darius, is basically that the market will be chasing extremes over the next couple of years. So from chasing the inflation narrative we could be chasing the recession narrative the next quarter and then back to chasing the inflation narrative what do you make of that thesis and how to position for it basically well that's everything i just said right it's you, mm. you're, you're, it's economic volatility is what you would expect when inflation is is running high and you know we're in, we're in a pretty high level of inflation both uh, in terms of you know the the absolute level but also relative to you know kind of the prior regime you know now we're in a regime where inflation is not just higher than what we're used to but there's going to be more volatility associated with inflation than we're used to. And as a function of that, more volatility associated with growth. So I agree with you in terms of swinging from extreme to extreme, right? You go back to June, all we cared about was a was recession, you know? <laughs> you know, like that was it. And now, you know, if you're, I would argue that the recession probability just in terms of the general consensus view of, around recession has really dissipated, you know, has gone back to what I would consider to be an appropriate level, which is, I don't know, maybe a, you know, one in four, one in five chance of occurring over the next 12 months. I think, you know, in late June, and I was, myself was guilty of this, probably thought it was a, more than a coin toss at that point. And I think that was wrong. I think ultimately the the three-month 10-year yield curve has, has been as accurate as it's always been, you know, which is 100% hit rate, is, is telling us we were wrong about that assumption as, as a collective investors, you know. We've been talking a lot about the U.S. economy today, Darius, uh, but I also want to touch upon the rest of the world. Um, yeah. We see pockets of weakness outside of the U.S. border, even if we have this very solid U.S. economy. So please take us pockets, through your- man. It's the whole pants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole pants. You see these PMIs today? So uh, sorry to cut you off, but I mean, it, it, was, it was as good as the ISM manufacturing report was is as bad as the rest of the PMIs were globally. So, you know, we got global PMI data manufacturing for, for most of the economies in the world today. And there's a number of major economies contracting. China, and what I mean by contracting, and it's below 50 in that, and that metric means you're, you're, uh, uh, the, net, the net respondents are, are pointing to contraction. 
could China Eurozone, okay, there's two thirds <laughs> to half a global GDP. <laughs> Germany, Italy, Spain, Greece are all in the Eurozone. UK, Canada, Mexico. These are, this is like a who's who of the top 10 economies of the world, right? You know, this is a lion's share of global GDP, X, the US. And then in terms of, um, if you look at the PMIs, you know, generally accepted is like 52 is kind of where you're really not growing. Like 50, you do, 50 is a, a legend, there is, is, is from a from a re, uh, response perspective, is the the zero line and diffusion, but generally speaking, fifty two is kind of where um, you kind of lines up with, with no growth or, or some growth. And world is below fifty two. Japan, France, Ireland, Indonesia, Russia, and Brazil. So I just named like eighteen of the top twenty economies in the world <laughs> from a GDP perspective that are either growing below you know stall speed or actually an outright contraction. From a global goods uh, perspective, and so you know, there's a there's a lot of there's a considerable amount of weakness, and I would argue it's probably more weakness ahead. One, because we've seen that the, there's going to be a lagged impact of monetary tightening, but number two, this rationing story in Europe and China is real. Now, I'm not I'm not in the you and you and I I think we share views on this. I'm not in the bear case that oh my God, Russia's going to turn off the gas and everyone's going to freeze to death in Europe. Right. The storage levels, we very clearly have met all the storage targets months ahead of time. So that's we can take the left tail risk out of that. But we're still talking about targeted reduction of 15 percent in energy consumption mm. in, in, in Europe. We're still talking about rolling blackouts in China and, and zero COVID in China. And so the outlook for global manufacturing is very clearly, in my opinion, one that's going to end in recession. Whether or not that broadens out to the services sector and causes a broad global recession to me is still an open debate. If we look at the potential spillovers to the U.S. economy from these huge pockets of weakness outside of the U.S. border, um, let's take Europe first. If we assume that Europe enters a recession in the fourth quarter of the year and into the next year, uh, does it matter for the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the re I think it matters in a very uh, awkward way, which is, you know, it's it, obviously if Europe goes in a recession, it's going to, you know, kind of deteriorate. It's going to strengthen the U.S. dollar via the the, the, the FX channel with the euro. Um, but ironically, if we're, we're talking about a recession where, you know, productive capacity and manufacturing and output of goods and, the, you know, shipping and distribution of goods is actually kind of the epicenter of that, which I would argue that would be the case in Europe. Then we're talking about more complications with global supply chains, which may kind of, you know, kind of, um, you know, all the good news that we're, we're receiving on that front may actually come to a, a halt in that kind of scenario, in a scenario. So it's not like it's this linear slide down where, okay, if Europe and China go into recession, then we get the disinflation and then we get the Fed pivot. I'm not so sure that is the most kind of um, the, mo the modal outcome. I think it's a, it's a more balanced kind of assessment in terms of how it may impact U.S. Uh, inflation and U.S. asset markets as a function of that. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We get a bunch of questions from the audience in relation to energy commodities and the potential recession in Europe and, and elsewhere around the globe. Uh, usually you see a pretty strong 
correlation between, for example, oil and the manufacturing PMIs globally. But currently, it seems as if the reason why manufacturing PMIs are slowing is that we have, have high energy prices, right? So at which point should we expect the energy complex to sort of give up on current trends if the manufacturing cycle slows even further? It's it's in the process of giving up right now. I mean, it's at a very mm. critical level. You know, it's it's it. You know, if it doesn't if it doesn't hold lows of a, I want to say a couple of weeks ago, then we're going to have to be talking about a very different energy market, right? I mean, you know, we had a nice little recovery off the lows. You know, on the um, news that you know OPEC might be you know considering to offset you know uh, speculating to offset um, you know the return of any Iranian production, but that's been basically just punted really quickly. Um, so the energy markets, you know, and again, I've seen thousands of tweet threads on this stuff, you know, and 50% of which I have no idea what's going on. I think we're getting too esoteric now when we analyze energy supply and demand people. Let's keep it there. Uh, but anyway, like it's very clear that we're in a global slowdown from a goods perspective. Now, one thing that's also weighing on energy that's going to very quickly become something that's not weighing on energy is this SPR release. You know, we're getting towards the tail end of that. Um, you know, <laughs> I'd like to joke that our, our commander in chief's done buying votes pretty soon. Um, so eventually we got to see what the energy markets shake out to be on the other side of that. And then I think if we're, you know, we're, we're basing and bottoming, then we're to what you to the point you just made in terms of, um, you know, this being one of the contributing factors to to the global manufacturing downturn. Th that contributing factor will heighten in terms of significance. Uh, but I'm not sure we know the answer to that question yet. Uh, I think we can pull up a chart on the electricity pricing in Europe as well, Brian. Um, so if we look at the most recent price action in the electricity market in Europe, uh, well, it's been absolutely um, bizarre what we've seen. Uh, we've been above 1,000 euros per megawatt hour just a few days ago, and now we're back at uh, just about 500 euros per megawatt hour. So a 50% drop after a increase of a thousand percent or thereabout in a matter of right. months i mean there is obviously electricity runs through the veins of right about every corner of an economy uh, and if we look at the potential bill that has to be paid in europe this winter we are probably talking about a bill of the magnitude uh, of the bailouts that we saw during the financial crisis of 2008 2009 so by the end of the day do you think this energy issue and the risk of bailouts, for example, in Europe, will lead to new inflationary pressures once we get out on the other side. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's anytime that we're seeing this domestically with the student loan forgiveness and all this stuff. Mm. And yeah, anytime the government is subsidizing consumption, it's adding to demand in an otherwise system in a system that's already clearly stressed from a supply demand perspective. So yeah, of course it's gonna contribute to higher levels of inflation, but which is also, if you know, we talked about our secular inflation model as well in the program, you know, in terms of one of the the the, the features that are in, within that model that's contributing to to that that positive revision in, in the trend, forecasted trend rate of inflation. Clearly fiscal policy is one of the dominant drivers. We've seen a big change in the fiscal reaction function, not just in the US, but globally. You know, we've taken a big step forward in terms of the the, the financial authorities or the, the sorry, fiscal authorities' willingness to step in and intervene. And if they step in and intervene, obviously it makes the situation better today, but it's going to obviously make the situation worse tomorrow from a liquidity standpoint. Um, and so, and, and, and so from that perspective, in, in fact, um, if you throw up slide uh, seventy, Brian, where we show our net liquidity analysis, you know, this is this stuff. Can, I, I want to be very clear. There's a very clear right tail risk that I don't think the average investor understands, but
But from my perspective, the base case and the bear case, which is, you know, like my finger in there, it's two thirds of the probability distribution are still pointing to debt declining net liquidity. You know, the blue are showing here in this chart is the, the blue line is uh, U.S. dollar net liquidity um, through the you know the most important features and factors that that matter uh, from the Fed uh, from the Fed and Treasury um, when you aggregate all those statistics, and then we show you know Bitcoin and the S and P, and it's one you know one when I add that that band around it, you know the the dotted blue line is sort of you know, where our projections for net liquidity are likely to end the year based on some you know different changes in things like the reverse repo facility, uh, quantitative tightening, et cetera. The red line. Is the base the bear case scenario, which is what happens if this inflation stuff actually does not, you know, do what we all expect it to do, which is go straight down. If inflation doesn't go straight down, if that process of disinflation is stochastic and and nonlinear, and it's stickier than we expect currently as a you know as a collection of market participants, then holy cow, look out below. You know, we're talking you know a low you know ten thousand on Bitcoin, thirty four hundred on the S and P. Now, again, I don't think that's the, the median outcome, the modal outcome, but it's definitely a very, very legitimate risk in this world where we're getting incremental fiscal policy to fan the fames of inflation. If we go back to the question that we asked uh, initially in today's uh, daily briefing, we asked whether the Federal Reserve will uh, keep federal uh, funds rates at higher levels for longer. But we tend to forget that they could also decide to keep liquidity tighter for longer. That's not really being debated, is it? Well, that's why I say tighter for longer, not yeah. higher for longer. I had to correct myself uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was like, no, it's not higher for longer. It's tighter for longer. Like like, like I, I tweeted this on the, uh, during Powell's speech on, uh, not last Friday, two Fridays ago. Uh, was, it wasn't even last, I, it's dog days of summer. I can't even tell you <laughs> what's going on. I guess it was last Friday. But anyway, I tweeted this during the speech and I said, hey, we have to get used to as an investor, we have to mentally prepare ourselves for a world where the Fed gets the Fed funds rate to three and a half or four percent, holds it there for twelve to eighteen months, and and does not do any changes to its quantitative tightening program in terms of the projected tightening. That means we're at four percent interest rates for all of twenty twenty three. Fed you know just reduces its balance sheet by a quantitative tightening somewhere over a trillion dollars, one point one trillion dollars or something like that. And tell me what happens to asset markets in that in that in that environment. Obviously, we all think the, mm -hmm. the natural response is down. But riddle me this. What if this is a U.S. economy based on all the sort of, you know, cash on the sidelines we can observe in terms of excess liquidity in the reverse repo facility, in terms of the, the, the increase in cash we're seeing on the, on the household and, and corporate balance sheets and ultimately the kind of, you know, levels of, um, you know, kind of uh, aggregate net worth relative to disposable personal income? What if this is an economy that can handle that? And you don't see a material breakdown in corporate profitability. And you don't see a material breakdown in employment. Because I don't think the average investor understands that this economy has a lot more juice as we're observing in the PMI data today. We're observing the consumer confidence data, reserved in the July jobs report, reserved in Q2 earnings. This economy has more juice than the average bear is willing to admit. And what if that juice allows it to grow, you know, something you know, maybe right around trend or slightly below trend all throughout 2023? What do you do with asset markets in that scenario? I have no mm. clue. I don't. No. I think yeah. that's a very fair and seasoned assessment of the potential outlook for the uh, yeah. asset markets, uh, Darius. You know, I've made it my trademark to always conclude the daily briefing with a meme and uh, being placed right in the epicenter of the energy crisis in Europe. I simply have to have a laugh. 
about the situation on a daily basis with a meme. Uh, so today's meme, um, uh, I've called it the German man paying his electricity bill 2022. So um, let's see what happens in Germany. Um, the electricity bill still looks extremely grim when you look a couple of months ahead for the German consumer, unless the public sector decides to take the bill. Um, by the end of the day, that is the question now, who's going to pay because someone has to pay in Europe. Darius, a great, great pleasure to talk to you again. It was a great debate. I learned some today, man. I appreciate you, man. Thanks for hosting and uh, thanks everyone for watching. I mean, if I, if I can end on this note, we don't always have all the answers. There, the level of conviction we have as talking heads, as people you respect and listen to from a financial advice perspective, we do not have all the answers. You should be very concerned about listening to someone right now that sounds like they have all the answers. Because I can tell you, I'm looking at about 2,000 different data points on this massive screen in front of me that tell me not to have all the answers. And so maybe I'm overly analyzing too many statistics, but I think the real the real thing that we need to do is humble ourselves as investors and understand that the distribution of outcomes is pretty flat and wide. And we need to get a little bit more information in order to kind of pivot and lean. So that's what I'm focused on over the next few weeks and months. Word, Darius. Very good point. Thank you for joining, Darius. Uh, we will be back tomorrow at the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, my colleague Maggie Lake will host Warren Pice. So see you again tomorrow. Goodbye. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best brightest and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.